You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 46 of season 12, for November 11, 2018. I'm really far behind on listener feedback since last month I've been away, so let's take some listener feedback. This is a really interesting one, one of those that really took me by surprise, to be honest. It's by it's from James Daldry, and he says... Now, this is in reference to, I don't know, something episode probably 38 or 39 or so... Uh, where I was talking about how I often get annoyed when new technology is inferior to old technology, but still sort of takes its place. And and I, I don't think I don't think that many techies, at least techies who actually work on tech, rather than techies who just kind of fawn over it, I don't think that's much. I don't think that's a hard sell, that idea, that old tech is sometimes just flat-out better, but still gets replaced by new tech. And this email kind of speaks to that. So let's see what he says. It's really super interesting. So he says, this is James Daldry. He says, I'm a retired TV service tech, having uh, started in 1963. Back then, all TVs had knobs, even the ones with remote control. Back then, adding a remote to a color TV added $100 to the street discount price, or $30 for a black and white. The demise of the knob was a step-by-step process which started in 1963 when the Federal Trade Commission decreed that the 63 TVs had to have a place where a UHF tuner could be easily added, and all sets made after mid-64 had to have it factory installed. So most sets had a large T-handle knob at the top right with an even larger ring knob around it for VHF channel changing, and below it, a slightly smaller UHF T-handle and ring. The VHF tuner was uh, was detented so you know when you when you turn it it goes clunk 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 and the UHF tuner was continuous like a radio that ended in the late 70s when the FTC that's the Federal Trade Commission decreed that since the VHF tuner clunked the UHF tuner must also clunk so the manufacturers came up with weird eccentric gears and detents to make individual numbers from 14 to 69 appear in a little window when you changed channels. It was not possible to motorize the contraption, so remote control sets required an entirely different setup. The new idea was, instead of manually rotating a variable capacitor to change the tuning, use a semiconductor device that thinks it's a capacitor to do it. No moving parts, so no motor. Take a rotary switch with however many positions you want, usually 12 to 16, and connect a separate multiple-turn volume control to each switch setting. Design a VHF tuner to use electronic tuning. Now you had a single knob that any position could be any channel and could be motorized. FTC is happy, manufacturers are happy, really troublesome mechanical kludge, because a large handful of good multi-turn controls would cost a major portion of the price of the TV, so the manufacturers used crap. About this time, there was a major change in the way remote controls worked. The ones in the 50s and 60s and most of the 70s used ultrasonic sound, which was received by a microphone, amplified, and sent to several tuned circuits to determine which button you pressed. In the late 70s, infrared remote controls came out, which were 
microprocessor controlled and, and determined the function by counting pulses in the infrared signal. Now, now that there was a, a little computer in the TV, they could start shaving costs. The voltage-controlled tuners went to the way, went by the wayside, replaced by tuners that used math to determine what channels they were set for. Voltage-controlled amplifiers allowed the micro to control volume, picture size, color, intensity, contrast, you name it. The controller puts a number on the control bus. The audio chip catches the number and sets the volume or bass or treble or balance. If the picture is in the wrong size, the wrong color, the service tech can punch a few keys on the uh, customer remote control to set up all of it. It's all just numbers stored in a little 8-pin memory chip. Volume controls, contra contrast controls, horizontal size controls cost money. Numbers are free. It's cheaper to make every set of uh, every set a remote control than it is to put controls on the set. So there you go. That that's that is exactly how the new tech uh, supplanted the old tech. And reading it, you can kind of I mean you can definitely see the logic there. Like he says, numbers are free put it on a little tiny chip and just have it set everything for you and you're done, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is a lot, it is simpler in a weird way, you know, from, from at least from a middle, from that middle ground point of view, it's simpler than the mechanical controls. Now, from a manufacturing standpoint, obviously that's, that's not the case because little, little computer chips are, are difficult to make. I mean, they're not difficult to make for the right if, if you have the right equipment, uh, but in terms of sort of reproducibility, it, you know, it, it's a very, very specialized thing that you are building. And so take it or leave it, right? I mean, that's, that's the trade-off. So that's, that's a fascinating story. I, I never, I've never heard it spelt out with such clarity before. So thank you very much, James Daldry, for that information. Absolutely fascinating, completely unexpected. That's one of those feedbacks that if I had hoped I had gotten such a detailed explanation, I don't think it would have ever happened. Luckily, I had no idea anyone knew that kind of information, and uh, I was quite happy to get it. So that that's a little bit of um, a little bit of hobby, or, or not so hobby um, tech for you, electronics, trons, as they used to be called. And now let's listen to a, a related comment, an audio comment, from Ken Fallon. I'd like to, um, listening to your show and about televisions and the big dial button, and uh, I think it's very insightful what Deep Geek has just said there about it being fashion. Of course, uh, if you were talking to my wife, she'd be able to tell you that there's psychological reasons for the herd instinct, and it's very important for people's well-being that they... Um, you know, have the group and the peer acknowledgement. From an industrial design point of view, the uh, television knob um, was kind of linked to the whole Sony Hi-Fi thing where there were lots of buttons and then suddenly the fashion trend went to not having any buttons and sleek designs. Um, so as a result of that, your you know, button uh, knob, center knob at the front became unfashionable. Um, in an industrial design context and you have to follow the halo trends as well so when the iPhone comes out it's a popular brand you need to look like the halo like that popular brand for to achieve the halo effect which is essentially a marketing term for uh, deriving revenue by looking and emulating 
product a uh, desirable product. Um, one thing I will say is that the majority of TVs nowadays at least have on the back of the panels, the on-off panels, they will have a three-button menu control, uh, center one is the on and off, and they'll have an up and down button at the back. This is pretty much universal, at least uh, for the TVs that we uh, deal with over here, and that's pretty much it. So there's another, another, I guess, another take on on the issue. I mean, it's I don't know if it's another take, but it's another angle on the same issue. And so if I the audio may have been hard to to decipher due to the background noises, so I'll just repeat it really briefly here. Uh, Ken Fallon's saying essentially it, it's largely down to, which is what I guess Deep Geek was sort of saying as well. It, it's down to fashionable, what what's fashionable at the time. But um, I think Ken Fallon was was suggesting that. There, there are both psychological and just pure economic um, influences when, when these kinds of decisions are being made. And yeah, that's a good point. Obviously, uh, I really, I mean, the fashionable, the, the 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 fashion of tech is interesting, and I think I'm maybe I I treated it too lightly, possibly when Deep Geek talked about it. Maybe I I don't think I viewed it. I think I was viewing it on a very personal, singular level when Deep Geek was talking about it, and then Ken kind of, since he cited his wife, who I guess the way he spoke about that, he, I, I'm assuming she is learned in this field, so I kind of thought, oh my gosh, there's a whole sociological aspect to this, where where it's not just, you know, an individual thinks, oh, this is kind of cool, I, I think I'll pick it up. It's more like a big sort of, I get, like Ken says, a, almost a horde mentality of of let's let's make tech go in this direction and and you can see that in in some ways i think with certainly like with touch touch screens on 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 handheld devices which i i hate um and i i've i've said i've hated things before and then come back around you know in a couple of years and thought how did i ever hate that obviously this is a great idea but i i can't see myself doing that with touch screens i've never liked them and and that's not to say that I haven't had to use them, you know. I mean, I've I've used them th- throughout my life, really. I mean, they're not super new. I, I the good ones are super or, or fairly new, but but the the idea has been around, and I've it's always it's always confounded me. Um, the inaccessibility of it, the ineffectiveness of it, is just really really bad compared to something like a keyboard or you know buttons or knobs. And I, I, I keep feeling like the whole touchpad thing and even the virtual reality thing. It's just, it's so much like we're striving for these weird sort of visuals that we see in science fiction movies or in, in TV shows. I mean, I don't know if probably someone has analyzed this in depth. I, I haven't, but for me, my influences just look at Star Trek, ne- the next generation, you know, where they have their little, their little, personal assistant things and they're touching the screen and you just think oh my gosh that's so so sci-fi and then you have something like that in front of you and it's you know your your new android tablet or or whatever and you just kind of think to yourself this is so cool i'm 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 exactly like in the movie or or if you're doing virtual reality and you're manipulating mid-air but but you're actually controlling something you think oh my gosh this is just like in the movies and and i don't know i i i I guess i shouldn't discount 
that kind of feeling on a massive level. And and it's it is really strange that that things can be so strongly influenced. I guess at the end of the day by the movie business. I should stay in the movie business. I could change the world. So anyway, that's th- those are interesting interesting um thoughts on a subject that that I really thought was a complete digression and a waste of everyone's time. But apparently not. TV knobs are a hot topic among the tech community. Who knew? Sorry, I just cut to a coffee break without warning you. But there you go. Hopefully you took the musical cue for what it was and got yourself a cup of coffee. So let's talk about some Linux packages that may be on your system. They definitely are if you have a full install of Slackware, but not everyone does. Not everyone's so lucky. So um, these may not be on your 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 system, but there there are packages out there, and they are or there are applications out there, and, and they tend to to be lurking on a lot of systems. And certainly, if if it's not on your system and you like the sound of it, you could install it. So this is part of my series of looking at every single package on a Linux system, and for some unknown reason, I chose Slackware as my base for that. And why why am I I'm saying it in that manner because Slackware has a lot installed on it. But I think that's good. So, um, because many of us don't, we, we don't look at the stuff on our Linux system. It's, um, it's something that we just don't typically do unless we're building it from scratch, like literally from scratch, like Linux from scratch. Or if we suddenly realize that we need some, some, some tool for some purpose, and we get referred to, to a, a package that we had no idea ever existed. So I'm trying to preempt that and 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 look at some packages. So here we go. Last time we did this, we left off with Char, which, if you'll recall, was a really fascinating shell archiving tool. And if you if you didn't hear that episode, you should go back and listen to episode. Uh, looks like it was episode 34 when we last did this. So. In this section, or in this episode, rather, I want to talk about... So we're in the S's of the A package set of Slackware. And so I want to talk about the next one on the list, which is S-Locate, which is the security-enhanced version of GNU-Locate. Now, we haven't talked about GNU-Locate yet. Uh, it just wasn't on... It's, it's not on my list yet. It, it isn't... Uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it's in the A package set. I guess I can check really quick. No, it is not. H-I-J-K-L, log rotate. Yeah, it's not here. So we haven't talked about locate, so we're just kind of skipping to S-locate. And according to the man page, the uh, secure, actually even better to the summary, not better, but shorter, is the summary of the package itself from Slackware. So S-locate is an enhanced version of locate, a command to help you locate files on your system. Like the original version of Locate, S-Locate maintains a database of files on the system, updating it nightly. Unlike the original, S-Locate indexes every file on the machine, rather than only the ones that can be seen by everyone. 
The secure part of slocate is that it only returns matches if the user is allowed to see the files. So I don't use locate. I don't use GNU locate and I don't use slocate. And that might be the last time you ever hear me say that because I kind of, I already knew what locate was. I, I sort of, once I looked at what slocate was, I sort of knew what that was. And I really just kind of, I, I thought, well, I guess I'll try it because I'm doing this thing where I look at all the packages. So I just typed in slocate and then a string that I figured I could search for, which happens to be Thursday. And wouldn't you know, it spits out a bunch of machine, a bunch of uh, files on my computer t uh, to my screen almost instantly without any annoying errors about you can't read this file or that file or this device or that device. You're just super fast, super easy. It, it made the experience, um, it just it made it a no-brainer, really. Now, previously... I've been doing find commands uh, because for a very long time I didn't really understand how to use find. I, 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 it took me a, quite a long time after starting to use Linux to discover, or to, no, to get comfortable with find. And that is to say I, I'd heard about find, everyone raved about find, and I just couldn't figure it out for the longest time. I just, it just wasn't working for me. And so, so once I did, I thought, well, great, now I'm going to use find. And that seems like the most direct route to what I want, which is to find a file. And I, I don't tend to look to applications that 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 claim to you know make something more user friendly or whatever. And that's kind of how I I saw locate. I thought, well, why would I use locate, which is storing like this database on my system, and, and therefore like, and I don't have, I don't really understand where that database is. I wouldn't know how to look at it necessarily. So how would I ever know whether that database itself was, uh, had integrity? And so, so why would I do that? I would just search my system itself with find. Like, don't look at a database created by another application or by another process to find the stuff that you could just look through your right right there on your computer that that seemed weird to me and actually as i speak it still does but um i think that recognizing the patterns of how i typically do use find it, it's it's very frequently not you know it's something that you do maybe on a monday because you've you've forgotten what you named a file exactly that you created on friday and and didn't touch over the weekend you know that's kind of it's it's not one of those things where I'm I'm using find like all the time, like every day, all day, repeatedly, an hour after ever on the hour. So so the the fear, this latent fear of oh, what if my database becomes out outdated even by just a day, and then I use locate and I can't find a file? Oh my gosh, what will I do? So I think what I'm trying to say is that for simplicity's sake, maybe locate or s locate in this in this case would would make sense because we can compare the the commands. So if I do a find tilde, so I'm finding stuff in my home directory, um, and I can filter that out by a t dash type, not dash dash type, just dash type, and then I'll put F for file. I don't know why it uses shorthand notation like that, but it does. And then dash, let's do I name for case insensitive name. And then we'll do a quote asterisk Thursday asterisk close quote, 
and then you wait and you wait for it to to scrub all of your files in your home directory. Maybe that's not the the most efficient way to do it. Uh, in fact, I'm gonna. You just realized that slocate did not actually return stuff in my home folder. So, but there you go. I'm, I'm now I'm searching the uh, my external, not my external, but my storage drive, and it's it's returning things, but it is noticeably slower than slocate. I mean, it's just as valid, but it is it is just drastically drastically slower. Like I've got three entries, and I've been talking kind of to stall t for time, and it's just not happening. And now if I just if I close out of that, cancel out of that rather, s locate, and then just the string Thursday, I've got my results. That's how long it took. So yeah, it's it's a very very recognizable kind of okay. This is this is a huge difference in two since in two ways. You know, I mean, the find command is a little bit clunky. I mean, it's you know the the syntax of it. You have to do a lot of typing for for pretty slow results. S locate is S locate and then some string and that it's it's a lot lot simpler I think. So yeah, in short, I'm really I'm excited about S locate now. I don't know that I care about whether or not all my files are being indexed or just my user, you know, just the ones that I have permission to see have been indexed. I'm not sure that I care so much about that. I'm sure there's some kind of security thing to be concerned about, but this is this is just not my my area of expertise thinking about that level of of which is better um but i think for myself i i don't think i mind s locate being on my system and now that i know that it exists and i've tried it i, I think i might do something crazy and actually start using it a couple of switches that are important there's there are some manual overrides a dash u and a dash capital u for where to create the database and stuff like that but um the the ones that i guess i i care about would be slocate-e, that's a lowercase e, to exclude directories from the slocate database. It's always good to know about. There's also a dash i, which does a case-insensitive search, so that's pretty good too. Dash q for quiet mode, so that you don't get error error messages. I didn't get any error messages. That was one of the first things I noticed about the error messages. Um, sort of big difference, I would say, from find. I mean, I, I realize you can redirect the error messages in a find command so that they don't bug you. Uh, but I, I do... That is something that I, I know that I have gotten before when I do a, a big system-wide find. Uh, there, there are lots of error messages about this file system or that file system or this device not being able to be read. You can do re regex as well with the dash r. So if you if you have a little bit more of a complex search string, you can you can do that. And you can along with the dash u commands, you can make I, I guess I guess what you would say alternate or or self-contained databases of for for s locate. So if you if you have if you have s locate indexing a specific file path into a specific database, then you can tell slocate to search that database with a dash d for or, or dash dash database equals and then the path to the to the database or or databases. You can send it. You can tell it to to do a set of databases of uh, a set of uh, search a set of databases. So yeah, there's a lot of flexibility there for something that you know you might think is is fairly hands off. It actually has a lot of little little adjustments that you can make to it. So it's really, really kind of a cool command, and something that's probably not super new to half of you. 
like I say, I, I, I know that I heard about at least GNU Locate ages and ages ago, and just never really thought that I wanted to get involved with something quite that hands-off, but I'm, I'm kind of liking it now, at least for now, and, and if my workflow changes, I might, you know, go back to Find, and I might still use Find every now and again, uh, certainly Find for for piping stuff into parallel, that's still really useful for me. So we'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And, and there's also the question of whether I'll ever remember that slocate exists. Unless I happen to be on gnuworldorder.info and I happen to see this episode description. And I think, oh yeah, that slocate tool is really cool. Now, the next package in the A package set, in the A software directory on Slackware, is SmartMon Tools, which is a hugely important topic, really. I think it's one of those things that probably we don't talk about enough, really, as Linux users. I don't I don't think we give this enough coverage. I could be wrong. It probably depends on who you hang out with and what you talk about. But I just, I, I feel overall that a lot of Linux users forget to think about this. And, and frankly, a lot of people on proprietary systems forget to think about this, too. But I think proprietary systems have it built in running in the background anyway. I could be wrong about that. But either way, it's an important thing. Smart Mon Tools, I'm going to cover it next episode because I want to cover it properly. So thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. youngsters in your city roam the streets in restless, destructive gangs.